Hello and welcome to another edition of Across the States, the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. I'm your host, as always, Pat Fisher, and today we have a special edition lined up for you. We will discuss the ongoing crisis in Ukraine as both Ukraine and Russia sit on the precipice of war. Today's episode will be centered around a policy hour from last week, led by Carla Jones, Senior Director of Alex International Relations and Federalism Task Force, and Alex CEO Lisa Nelson, who led an all-star panel of guests to discuss the ongoing situation in depth. Let's go to their conversation now. Thank you very much. The real stars are the amazing group of experts that we have to discuss this really important issue at a pretty momentous time in Russian, Ukrainian, and the West's history. We have Yaroslav Borisiuk, who is the Deputy Chief of Mission at the Ukrainian Embassy to the United States. Chris Holson, Senior Advisor for Europe and Eurasia at the International Republican Institute. Alan Mendoza, Founder and Executive Director of the UK's Henry Jackson Society, Marcus Sarglup, the Deputy Chief of Mission at Estonia's Embassy to the United States, and Damon Wilson, President and CEO of the National Endowment for Democracy. Welcome and thank you. Every single one of these panelists has an impressive bio that can be found in the chat box along with materials from them or their organizations that should be helpful in understanding the current situation and providing context. Do make sure to check out the chat box. So let's get started. First, I'd like to give our attendees the answer to the question that a whole lot of them have been asking me. Damon, Ukraine is almost half a world away. So why should Americans care about what happens there, both from a geostrategic and from a global democracy perspective? Thank you so much, Carla, Lisa, for having me joining you and Alec and all of your members today to talk about what I really think is directly relevant to Americans, the situation in Ukraine, and particularly Vladimir Vladimir Putin's threat to extinguish freedom in this country. What's playing out is far more than about Ukraine. Yes, Vladimir Putin has been obsessed with Ukraine, has wanted to deny its legitimacy as a sovereign, separate nation. And the 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, before NATO leaders, he mocked the idea of Ukraine as a sovereign state. Uh, We've seen this for a long period, but what's playing out is so much more about Ukraine. It's about Vladimir Putin trying to extinguish the ability of a country to determine its own destiny, to extinguish, though, is really threatening to Putin himself, that the concept of people and power is based in the legitimacy of democracy, of people determining their own future. And so his effort to intimidate, to cower, to dominate, perhaps invade, occupy Ukraine is just as much about a reflection of his fear of his own people. And so this effort is about restoring a Russian, his legacy, a Russian control and empire, if you will. But it's a direct challenge to the United States because it is a pushback against the United States and the rules-based international order that we helped create and foster that allowed countries to determine their own future with whom they want to associate. And so while he's focused on Ukraine, he's motivated by challenging the United States when he was hoping and thinking perhaps the free world, the democratic West would be weak, divided and on its back foot. And I think he's having to think twice about that 
So what's playing out right now does not end in Ukraine. And don't think for one instance, if all of his demands about Ukraine were met, that that would be the end of the saga. It would be the beginning of a series of crises that would challenge Georgians, Armenians, Central Asians, a Belarus that is already occupied. And if he felt that he was getting away with it, the sovereignty and protection of NATO allies, like in the Baltic states and otherwise, that, wa- that means this is about so much more than Ukraine. It's where the future of freedom is being fought for today and why Ukraine merits our absolute support. That is a great answer, Damon. And most Americans have never heard of the Budapest Memorandum. Would you mind describing it and explaining the context in which it was negotiated, what commitments were made, who the signatories were? The Budapest Memorandum is already an illustration of a victim of how the Kremlin has systematically undermined agreements, treaties that really build the fabric of order in the world, whether it's violating the INF Treaty blatantly with their weapons development or undermining the Budapest Memorandum, which was an agreement that was reached in 1994 between the United States and Russia and the United Kingdom to support Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan in three different approaches to support, give them security assurances. So nuclear powers providing Ukraine security assurances about its borders of territorial integrity in exchange for Ukraine agreeing to give up its nuclear arsenal that it had inherited from the Soviet Union. At the time, Ukraine had the third largest arsenal of nuclear weapons in the world. And the Budapest Memorandum was one of these obscure but fundamental building blocks that provided a sense of reassurance and security to Ukraine itself, but also to Kazakhstan and Belarus, under which they would join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, give up their weapons, and in exchange, the United States, Russia, and the United Kingdom as nuclear powers would provide them assurances for their territorial integrity and sovereignty. Vladimir Putin has made a mockery of the Budapest Memorandum, and as part of our not just moral obligation, but legal obligation to stand by the Ukrainian people as they face this continued threat from Russia. I've heard a lot of people blaming NATO's eastward expansion for Russian aggression, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because NATO's a defensive alliance. Is NATO expansion the reason for Putin's current threats, do you think, Alan? And what are Ukraine's future prospects for NATO accession. One of the things that struck me during a visit back in 2019 to Kyiv was all the NATO signage everywhere. I saw pro-NATO signs in the metro and the squares all over. Well, I think it's a very interesting question, and this whole NATO uh, subtext of what's been going on. The reality is NATO poses no threat to Vladimir Putin. This is an imagined threat that is being produced by Putin as one of his straw men. As you know, a straw man argument is, look, let's build it up, we can knock it down, and that will give us a pretext for action. Putin is selling this conflict within Russia as one of NATO aggression. But the aggression he's talking about is essentially NATO's expansion post-Soviet Union into the former Soviet space. Uh, when independent countries, democratically elected governments, decided that they would like to pursue NATO membership from 1997 onwards. And as a result, we've seen the big expansion of NATO membership to, in some cases, Russia's borders. Obviously, the Baltic states are on Russia's border. They are NATO members. And of course, it goes round, if you like, Belarus and round Ukraine and down to Turkey, of course, though Turkey was an existing member. Now, 
as we've discussed, you know, NATO is a defensive alliance. Its purpose is not to attack anyone. Certainly, the idea that NATO would ever want to get into a war with Russia is just ludicrous. Uh, it's certainly not in NATO's interest to do that. It's not something ever been on the agenda. And as such, the the feeling that Putin is pushing in Russia that NATO is an aggressor trying to attack us is just based on not in no reality, but actually a warping of the truth. And he's obviously doing this for propaganda purposes. Now, the Ukraine, the case of the Ukrainian membership of NATO is, of course, an interesting one because Ukraine is an independent country. It has obviously got democratically elected governments, and those governments at various times have wanted to be part of this alliance. And of course, discussions have therefore, you know, been had at NATO level about whether or not, you know, we should move down the process of this membership. But this is not a live issue in the sense that nobody was pursuing this in a very dramatic way at present. So again, for Putin to suddenly say this is about NATO expanding into Ukraine, there's no relation, no relationship at all to the reality of what's been happening at the negotiating level at either Ukraine or NATO. So rather than, you know, kind of looking at the reality, he's again conjured up this paper tiger that he wishes to try and defang. Now, there are many reasons why you wouldn't, you know, be pursuing NATO membership for Ukraine right now. But the key thing is that Ukraine has a right to consider wanting to be part of the alliance. And we as NATO member countries have a right to admit Ukraine, should we at some point do that. So I stress this is not something that is happening right now. It's not even on the cards for the imminent future. It's something that's been thrown up by Putin to justify his aggression, but it doesn't again reflect reality. But I would like to stress that from perspective of other NATO members, certainly in the UK, we would be sympathetic eventually to Ukraine becoming a NATO member because it's an, a democratic ally and it would serve an important you know, purpose in strengthening a defensive alliance. So for us, it is down the line something important, but it's not something happening now. And that's a key thing to note. Thank you, Alan. Yaroslav, Ukraine is a very different place than it was in 2014 when Russia annexed the Crimea and occupied the Donbass. Ukraine's military and even Ukrainian national identity are a whole lot stronger than they were then. Can you describe some of those changes? And how has the Ukrainian public opinion toward Russia evolved over the past eight years? You're absolutely right. Ukraine is a different country, and uh, our opinion towards Russia changed dramatically. Uh, Russia is the country that invaded Ukraine, that uh, attempted to annex Crimea and part of um, our land in Donbass. So uh, nobody has any illusions that we have a neighbor we could uh, live uh, at this point peacefully with. We are defending our country in an active war, the the war that has taken over 14,000 lives of Ukrainians and the war that has lasted for over eight years, which is longer than World War II. But uh, Ukraine is different. Ukraine is more united, and Putin achieved a contrary result to which he had hoped to achieve. You know, he wanted to blitzkrieg and wanted to seize at least part of Ukraine and to keep it in its orbit. But the Ukrainians showed that we are willing to defend our choice, our choice to become part of the West, part of NATO, and no one can dictate this to us or to anybody in the 21st century. This is something what we are witnessing today should not be happening in the 21st century. This is the first time since World War II that somebody is trying to redraw borders in Europe by force, you know, and doing that without any pretext, any provocation or any action on, on our part. We talked about the expansion of NATO as something that would provoke or, or cause Putin to act this way. But if we look at NATO, waves of expansion. It hasn't expanded towards Russia in the past almost 20 years. The you know, last uh, additions were Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, you know, 
the Baltic states, it's been almost 20 years since they joined. So there's nothing that caused uh, uh, the situation that we have now. Yet we have, yes, he brought uh, Europe almost to the brink of war, Ukraine in, in, in the center of Europe. We have uh, 160,000 forces on our borders, poised to attack without any sign of de-escalation. You know, we have, we are witnessing uh, cyber attacks that the latest one was uh, yesterday that affected our ministries, you know, so just a range of attacks that happen on a daily basis. The ceasefire that we uh, have is not fulfilled by, is not uh, observed by Russia. So it's an active conflict and, and Putin uh, is willing to escalate and bully the entire, not just Ukraine, but everybody into uh, making concessions that for some reason he thinks he deserves and, and uh, force people to forget about the a rule-based order that existed after World War II and helped to keep peace on the European continent for all these years. And Yaroslav, also one of a disturbing article that I read last week about how the Donbass has declined economically under Russian rule. Has this affected allegiance to Russia in that portion of Ukraine? It's a difficult question to answer because Unfortunately, Russia effectively controls that territory. You know, it controls the entire media, entire information space. Also, it's uh, doing everything to keep Donbass in its realm. It has been disseminating, spreading uh, Russian passports to the population in Donbass. There are over 600,000 people uh, had to receive Russian passports just to continue their daily lives, their, their business. But nonetheless, this is part of Ukraine, and we believe that it will return to Ukraine. We are for diplomatic ways of solving this crisis, this conflict. Unlike Russia is trying to portray, we're not planning to attack Russia and take it by force. And uh, we hope to return Donbass and its people to Ukraine. And Chris, in addition to the internal changes in Ukraine, another thing that's giving me a little bit of optimism is that Russia's threats seem to have united NATO. I mean, even Turkey is expressing solidarity with Ukraine and strong solidarity. Do you think Putin was surprised by the West's relative unity? And also, why now? I mean, we didn't see anything close to this kind of unity in 2014. What do you think happened with the Western allies to make them stand together in solidarity? Well, first of all, let me just say thank you to the American Legislative Exchange Council for this opportunity. Appreciate it very much, um, Carla, and thank you. Well, again, Mr. Putin overreaches so often. This this ratcheting up this time, I think, has really sort of crossed uh, a line that they haven't crossed before. I think the alliance is holding together very strongly. I think NATO's always been held together strongly, and I think we're seeing that you know, borne out right now in, in its unity, uh, and it is strong, and that's good to see. I am a little concerned, though, uh, over time, because the Kremlin has the ability to find those weak points, to find those little fissures between what is naturally a large alliance and is always going to have some little spots like that. And to, you know, the more time goes on, they can try to find ways to drive wedges. So um, I think it's very important for the United States of America to continue showing the strong leadership that it has been on this at this time and to make sure that uh, the Kremlin understands that an invasion of Ukraine simply would be devastating to not only the Ukraine, but to people of Russia. And Marcus, still on the subject of Western unity, 
Can you describe some of the ways that the U.S. and EU were cooperating to deter Russian aggression against Ukraine and to prepare for the possibility that Russia might restrict energy imports to Europe, or rather energy exports to Europe? Yes. I'd also like to thank the ALEC for this opportunity to talk on this very important subject. But I would say that the U.S.-led response to the most recent increase in tension on the Ukrainian border has been really threefold. There has been a very strong diplomatic outreach to Kremlin and to Mr. Putin, which has, of course, its origins in the very real assessment of the threat that the Russian forces pose to the stability and existence of the country. So first of all, this diplomatic outreach, this has been done in a single voice. I think the most prominent example of this was the way that the Allies were passing their points to the Russian delegation at the NATO Russia Council just a couple of weeks ago. The second important aspect is that both the U.S. and the European Union have been saying to the Russian counterparts that should the diplomatic outreach not work, we have at our disposal a wide-ranging arsenal of sanctions and that we are going to impose those on Russia if and when they misbehave. And we are taking this step even if it will hurt ourselves. And third of all, a number of NATO countries have provided military aid to Ukraine to help Ukraine defend itself even better. Now, I was posted to Ukraine for three years prior to joining the Estonian team in D.C. And even over that short period of time, I could see the effect of the reforms that were being affected in various ways of life, but also when it comes to the Ukrainian military. So there's a real progress there. Now, it is a real problem in Europe, Carla, that you also mentioned that the places and the countries that different European countries source their energy imports. Here in the Baltic states, we have uh, been very vocal about the need to diversify these markets where we buy our energy so that we could not be backed into a corner and blackmailed politically. And I know that the US and the European Union have been working very closely together to do exactly that. Make sure we're safer in terms of natural gas for this winter, which is almost over and the heating period is coming to an end. But in an immediate future, we're talking about the next winter to make sure that people have enough power and gas to heat up their houses. But we have to make sure that these purchases are globally balanced such that no one seller could dictate political terms for their own interest. There has been a point that has been made that the Soviet Union was a very reliable deliverer of energy to Western Europe. But the point that my ambassador in Kiev has made repeatedly is that we in Estonia were not happy about this very reliable deliveries, that the Soviet occupation in Estonia was extended by at least 10 more years. It's very important also to consider where the energy is sourced. And Lisa, would you like to introduce Congresswoman Sparts? And then we'll get back to the panel after Congresswoman Sparts's presentation. 
for those of you who may know, Congresswoman Sparks was born and raised in Ukraine. She's a sitting member of Congress from Indiana right now, but she was an ALEC legislator, and we got to know her as an ALEC member. So we're thrilled to see her represent both ALEC in Congress and also her district in Indiana. My question for you, Victoria, and, and we're just, it's good to see you, but my, my initial question, what are your feelings, what are your emotions about what's going on and how, I know you've been doing a lot of media and educating Americans about this issue, but would love to hear about kind of your observations when you went to Kiev recently and, I, and how you're communicating this to both uh, your constituents in your district, but also to Americans who are curious about what's going on. Uh, thank you, Lisa. I'm actually uh, uh, talking to you from the great state of Indiana. I just thought I'll put that background, make me like I'm starting to look more important. But in reality, I am actually a huge fan of the state legislature. I feel that this is the most powerful and important legislature. So a huge fan of state legislature. We're going to solve all of the problems, not Washington, D.C. But um, related to Ukraine, it's a very concerning situation and the scale of potential conflict could be very dangerous. It can have a domino effect on the rest of the Europe and the rest of the world. And you can see that, you know, President Putin, he's an opportunist, right? He understood that United States has been doing a lot of things that are not very wise. And I want to be somewhat politically correct, so I don't use harsher words. But our president weakened the country, our current president weakened our energy policies and allowed countries like Russia to take advantage of it. And I think they emboldened them. Our president is very hypocritical. He does the talk, doesn't walk the walk. He goes and say, well, you know, we are going to be tough and Putin is just a terrible, terrible person. And then he gives him green light on Nord Stream 2 and causes a lot of uh, things, you know, with our energy policy will make Europe more dependent. He says, oh, and we'll stand with NATO, NATO is great allies, and he goes and abandons them in Afghanistan. And now as U.S. citizens. So I think President Putin understands that it's his chance, and he will advance as much as he can because he has a very big ambitions. And he, and if you notice, you know, the recent statement that Russia and China made, that is very interesting statement where they actually put it on a piece of paper, not just do some rhetoric, right? They made statement about Taiwan. They made statement about NATO, non-expansion. So that is a very, and also actually redefining what democracy is because he wants just to embarrass us and have another Afghanistan and show the world, hey, you stick with us. We mean business. We mean power. And these democracies are not work. And we're not helping by having harassing our citizens and weakening our economy and creating a lot of things that are not good for our country. So when our country has been weakened by bad policies, it creates you know, opportunity for adversaries to advance. And it's a big fight. It's a big problem for Ukraine because, um, you know, as I said, once, you know, they'll have to fight that fight, not just for themselves, but a lot of other countries like Cubans or Russians or or Chinese or Belarusians to ever have chance to be free and democratic countries. So they'll have to win it. So, but that's not going to be that, you know, the enemy is pretty powerful. He tried to use police. He couldn't. Now he brought a huge army on their borders. So that's tough for them. Well, it's incredible to hear your passion and your enthusiasm on this issue. My question as I leave you is, um, what else could the Biden administration be doing 
both to deter Russian aggression and help Ukraine defend itself. Do you feel, Congresswoman, that he and his administration are doing all they can, working with our allies? And um, are there sanctions? Are there things that you are leading the efforts on in Congress? Well, I think, you know, if you think about this administration, now they're scrambling, right? They've been very slow in response and they haven't really done. Now they really try to create all of this energy, supposedly they mean business. The problem is, you know, too, if this administration wants to really make a difference, they need to start working with Democrats and Republicans, not just say my way or highway, because that's how you can make, you know, more powerful, whatever you want to propose and deter Putin from going further. And they always take this approach where they not engage with Republicans. And also, if you think about Speaker Pelosi, she is the third most powerful Democrat in the country, right? I mean, she is Speaker of the House. She didn't even put it in the agenda last week, even in discussion about Ukraine. They had a seven-hour markup on Tuesday. She didn't even mention they went all over the world with different problems, but this is one of the biggest security crises we had for a long time. She didn't even mention anything about that. And then she has like special hour on Wednesday after Congress leaves. So where is the Speaker Pelosi? Where is her leadership to show that, you know, she, she's going to be working on, you know, some really serious sanctions if he's going to go further. So Republicans now start doing things on their own. And it doesn't help the situation. But ultimately, the leadership has to be exercised by this president. And he needs to lead. And he's playing a lot of politics. He's just afraid to look weak again if he has another Afghanistan. But I haven't seen him engaging with both sides of the aisle. And we do some things on our own. But I think it's unfortunate that he hasn't been doing that. Congresswoman Spartz, thank you so much for joining us. It means so much to our members and all of our attendees that you took the time to speak to us. This past Sunday, President Zelensky invited Biden to Kyiv as a demonstration, like a way to demonstrate solidarity with Ukraine. Would this kind of gesture from the Biden administration help? Other European leaders, for example, have visited Ukraine from Olaf Scholz to Erdogan to Boris Johnson. Would it help for somebody for the Biden administration or possibly Vice President Harris to visit Kiev? Well, I mean, gesture is great, but actions mean more than gestures, you know. And it's interesting for me where we had a call with some members of Lithuanian parliament who went to Ukraine and they say, my gosh, only Lithuanians and Baltic countries and Poland are now in Ukraine. West is abandoning now as, as they get to Afghanistan, they're all leaving. So he said like, you know, and I said, well, guys, you know, you went through a lot of dictatorships, socialist communists, you're much tougher people, you know what it is to lose freedom. So I think You know, and unfortunately, Eastern Europe probably has a stronger will to fight any dictatorship. So then Western Europe as Western culture is getting weaker and weaker. So I think, you know, it would be good if he does. But ultimately, what means like if he actually has some action, Putin is, you know, he's a person of action. He understands, you know, that all talks and posture is great, but it means nothing. You, by real action, you can deter someone who has big ambitions. And if he understands that the cost is going to be significant and he might have problems himself, you know, then he will try to think maybe 
how he can negotiate. Otherwise, you know, it's it, he's not going to do it. And he's a pretty determined. And he sees that Biden is pretty weak. Damon, what sanctions do you think are the most likely to have the greatest impact on Russian behavior? Well, first of all, it's a, it's an honor to be here with Congressman Sparks. And thank you for your leadership for strong American foreign policy to support democracy, support Ukraine. But Carla, um, sanctions are part of the equation, but they're just one part of it. Sanctions don't represent a comprehensive strategy to deter Vladimir Putin. They're a key part of it. And so there are pretty extraordinary sanctions that have been prepared in two key areas. One that really target Putin, his cronies, follow the money to the Kremlin and how he is essentially pillaging the Russian people of their resources. And so increasingly targeting that network of cronies, of folks that are around the Kremlin circle so that they feel that personal pain. And second, being quite sure that many of these uh, uh, Russian elite around the Kremlin who send their children to be educated in the West, oftentimes have property in the West, might have bank accounts in the West, that that is no longer okay. That we have got to actually tighten the, the screws on the Russian leadership laundering their funds, if they will, in the capitalist markets that work in the West and don't work in Russia. But I think part of this is bigger than sanctions. It is where the congressman was, a comprehensive strategy to bolster and support Ukraine and its democracy, whether that is major significant uh, economic uh, shoring up right now to ensure its banking systems, its financial systems can weather this, this test, or more of a Lend-Lease Act, a billion-dollar sort of military assistant equipment to ensure that the Ukrainian people can defend their sovereignty. And I think putting these together are really, really quite critical. Finally, the sanctions that are on the table that hurt most is where Russia gets its capital, and that's from the hydrocarbon market. And so we we see that Western governments have prepared pretty devastating sanctions in the event of an attack. I guess I would just argue that given what Vladimir Putin has already done, this is already waging a war of sort, a hybrid war against Ukraine, that many of these sanctions that have been prepared, we should act on now, including undermining the Nord Stream pipeline. And Congresswoman Sparts, if the legislation that Congress is working on as a response to Russian aggression, what parts of that legislation do you think are the strongest? Well, I think, you know, Rob, I agree with Damon. You know, there are some things sanctions need to happen if he moves forward. But some of them you can really start do a little bit at a time just to show the human business because he's trying to wait it out. He tries to see, okay, we, we have divided. See if NATO maybe start, you know, blanking. We'll see, see if Americans, you know, start, you know, getting frustrated and parties start fighting with each other. He understands that. So I think, you know, it's important to show that some of the things and maybe come after people around him first and show, you know what? Plus, they mentioned very actually pretty. The parliament right now of Russia just made some votes violating Minsk agreement and pretty much saying that we are going to annex parts of Ukraine. That is a pretty bold statement. Maybe start looking around the leaders around him and who leads this initiatives because most of them don't, you know, they're wives and girlfriends and capital sits in UK and United States and they live in London and Miami. They don't really like to live in Siberia because it's pretty miserable life. But start maybe making the smaller things and say, listen, I need it. You know, we're going to do this. You try to work with us and de-escalate. We want to de-escalate. 
we're willing to listen to your concerns because that's the best solutions, you know, and we will, we're willing to do that. But he's not right now willing to sit at the table, you know, and he needs to show his willingness to sit at the table because he's just now playing around thinking, oh, guys, you will not be able to get together. I think he underestimates how much really West is nervous about him because we went with even with EU and NATO members and there, you know, Russia used to be in Berlin, even Germans, you know, maybe government is not too happy, but German people are getting nervous. I actually have a family in Germany too. You know, my mother-in-law is German, so I have relatives there and they're not too thrilled what their government is doing too. So I think people in Europe are very concerned, but we need to start showing that we mean something, that, you know, he has been escalated this since March. We have to should have dealt with him and say, okay, you feel that no one pays attention. He wants attention. Okay, you got attention. Let's talk. What's your problem? So let's address it, you know, because he had concerns. If you think he had interview a few years ago on Fox News and he was talking about how he was telling he's going to develop all these missiles and no one paid attention. And he said, I am not trying to defend myself. I am pretty much said, I'm going to attack. I, am, I want to make sure that missiles I've developed can attack you. you know, I'm, I'm not wasting your mind, my money to protect you. you. Your taxpayer is going to waste the money to protect the country because you will not be able to do it. I'm inventing new things. And he said, no, he did, right? So ultimately, he is on attack. He wants to be influential. He wants to, you know, bring, at least since they destroy Russia economically and not empower people, at least he has this posturing for his people, but he's very dangerous and we cannot underestimate his desires. So we have to be able to talk with him and have a conversation, but he needs to be willing to sit at the table. And if he seems we're weak, he's not going to sit at the table with us. He doesn't have to. Thank you very much, Congresswoman Sparts. And I've heard the exact same thing about the disconnect between the German government and the German people. So thank you very much for sharing that. You have been listening to a discussion on the crisis in Ukraine led by Carla Jones, Senior Director of the ALEC Task Force on International Relations and Federalism, and Lisa Nelson, CEO and President of the American Legislative Exchange Council. I want to thank you all for joining us for today's episode. Be sure to stay tuned for more of Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.